go any further, we'd just like to dismiss the children for Sunday school. And Marissa is at the back, ready to take you to where you're going to go this morning. Welcome here. It's so nice to see all of you live and in living color, not virtual. You're actually here. That's great. We also welcome the live streamers. But with live streaming, there, of course, is a, sometimes a temptation especially if you're uh, Ray Laser, because he's never seen a, tri- a stream where he wouldn't want to fish. So, Ray, if you're out there, put that rod down and pay attention, please. That song really fits good into our new series, uh, My Chains Are Gone, I've Been Set Free. This new series is entitled The Freedom Chronicles. And this is the first episode, which is also entitled how to get away with murder. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house and to uh, just worship you with the knowledge that we have the kind of freedom that so many people have not yet experienced. And it's all because of Christ. And we know that Satan sometimes tries to deprive us of the knowledge of that freedom and get us wrapped up in all kinds of drama and problems and fears that uh, has already been solved and resolved by the cross of Christ. So Lord, we just pray, even as we look at your word, that you would show us more and more what that freedom is like so that we can live in it that we're not letting anyone deprive us of what is rightfully ours in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. The old man's face was eroded like the uh, limestone cliffs around him. He looked like a typical desert tribesman, but there was something different about him. It was his eyes. Although he watched his goats carefully, he was often distracted. He seemed to be gazing into the distance, far beyond the vanishing point of the horizon, as if he had concerns elsewhere. Perhaps he was thinking about a lost opportunity, about the man that he could have been. Perhaps he had dreams of doing greater things, Or maybe he was a fugitive, and he was staying alert to notice any suspicious strangers passing through the area. What if, after all these years, there were still bounty hunters on his trail? His eyes also betrayed the burden of disappointment, the memory of failure. Was it disappointment with himself or disappointment with God? But at 80 years old, it was really too late to do anything about it. All that was left was a herd of goats and a daily search for greener pastures and the memory of what might have been. 
But on one of these Grishim forays, his past caught up with him. And that's when everything changed. There was a fire that started among some scrub brush. And the tumbleweeds and brambles are really so dry that they burn up quickly, just in a matter of seconds. But this fire continued to blaze. It was not natural. And it aroused his curiosity. We read in Exodus chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? And when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. This is one of the most familiar incidents in the Bible. Moses encountering God at the burning bush. It was a divine rendezvous that would forever change the history of the world. In fact, that encounter still impacts us today in the most profound ways. But we need to know the backstory. You see, in the Bible, there's a radical difference between the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor and the kingdom of God. The great civilizations of the past, Babylon, Rome, Egypt, were magnificent, impressive, powerful. But they were also corrupt and crumbling. By contrast, the kingdom of God, established with the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the rural hill country of Canaan, was not imposing or splendid, but it would endure until the end of the age. Now, in the beginning, those two kingdoms remained separate and minded their own business until Jacob's son, Joseph, was taken to Egypt and sold as a slave. But God was with him, and he was up to something good. He was working all things together for Joseph's good so that he actually became prime minister of Pharaoh's great dynasty. So in the days of Joseph, the kingdom of God was very popular among the highly cultured Egyptians. And so the entire tribe left Canaan and resettled in the land of the pyramids. And there they prospered. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And that's when the troubles began. Verse 8 says, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power. And that's when the Egyptians became concerned about the Hebrews becoming a national security threat. And so eventually the Egyptians turned the Hebrews into slaves and subjected them to forced labor, hoping that the momentum slow, but it didn't really work. So finally, the Pharaoh decreed the doctrine of forced population control. In verse 22, the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born, you must throw into the river, but let every girl live. This was one of the great atrocities of history. Ultimately, the kingdoms of this world have little regard for the children of God. And tragically, abortion is a continuation of that kind of evil. 
And it was Moses himself who was one of the intended victims of this purge. He was born with a death warrant attached to his birth certificate. But once again, God was up to something. In Acts chapter 7, verse 20, we read, At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. He was no ordinary child. Have you ever had a child that you thought, well, they're just ordinary? Don't all parents think that this is no ordinary child? Of course they do. And so they hid him and cared for him for three months. And after that, Moses was thrown into the crocodile-infested Nile, or rather, launched in a waterproof bassinet made of reeds. And downstream, the Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, and she saw this, and she had the, the floating basket retrieved, and she was delighted by its contents. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Maybe it was a divine sign, a gift from the gods. Whatever her maternal instincts produced an instant bond, and she realized this infant would become her son. Verse 7, then his sister asked her daughter, shall I go? and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. What a coincidence. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And from then on, this condemned Hebrew was part of the royal family. And he excelled and thrived in that environment. His life was defined by privilege and prosperity. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Moses was a man of the world successful, admired, respected, with every opportunity to have anything he dreamed of. And in that, he was free to be anyone he wanted to be. And so in the prime of his life, Moses was in the epicenter of the material world, surrounded by the glory and the grandeur of human greatness, the massive monuments and monoliths of the most advanced civilization in the world. Those spectacular works of art depicting jackals and owls, the gods of Egypt. But somehow, for Moses, the world was not enough. There was something missing. With all of the color and the pageantry and the energy of that great culture, you would barely notice the the corruption, the abuses, the butchery that made all this possible. But someone noticed, and early memories were stirred. Moses knew that the Hebrew slaves were his people, 
and he was drawn to their plight. Chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. See, until this point in his life, Moses had been indoctrinated in the worldview of Egypt. He was taught to believe that might makes right. The strong are blessed by the gods to overpower the weak. The defeated must serve the victorious. It was the way of the world. I mean, you saw this in the animal kingdom. This was Darwinianism at its best. And you, Moses, are privileged to be part of the superior race, not by birth, but by the generosity and grace of the royal family. You're not getting my best side. So Moses had come a long way. He was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. If you want my best side, there you go. Everybody wanted to be like Moses. But this wasn't his true identity. He wasn't, this wasn't what he was created to be. In a way, he was a victim of identity theft. And this is something that happens all the time. Children are raised in godly homes. And maybe they go off to university where they are overwhelmed by a qualified spokesman of the opposing viewpoint. People who sound so convincing in their evangelistic zeal as they try to turn your heart away from eternity and toward the right side of history. That's where all the smart people are, the most successful ones. So give up your superstitions and follow the science. You know, it's both interesting and disturbing that our universities used to be places where you could find a sanctuary for free speech. Free speech was absolutely their highest goal. But now, from what I hear from students going there, it's open season on any narrow-minded believer who follows the Bible. You have to be very careful what you say. The only real safety now is in conformity. Because cancel culture does not really allow for free speech. So forget about the kingdom of God and become someone who matters in the kingdom of this world. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't go to university. Education is a wonderful thing. It opens up many opportunities. So stay in school, kids, or you'll end up just like me. I'm warning you. What I'm saying is, Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, because if you do, you will also become a victim of identity theft. It's happened in our family and so many others. But our hope is in God that somehow he will remind them of their true identity in Christ. We don't know where, we don't know when, but something will awaken their soul from hibernation. Like the younger brother in Luke 15, 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, I will set out and go back to my father's house. And that's what happened to Moses. 
all of his degrees and doctorates, all of his distinctions, summa cum laude, valedictorian, first in his class, top of the food chain, did not erase his true identity. And that brought him finally to a moment of truth. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them in their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now he could have just turned his head and pretended he didn't see. The Egyptian part of him felt no outrage. This was the natural order of things. Those stubborn, stiff-necked slaves. But Moses was deeply disturbed by this. Why wasn't God doing anything about this injustice? Why wasn't he answering their prayers? Well, maybe, Moses, it's your move. Perhaps God has chosen you to deliver these people from bondage. But how could correcting one act of injustice make any difference? This is just way too risky. There was too much to lose. He was the most popular member of the royal family. He had more Twitter followers than anyone else. He got 100,000 likes every day. How can you give up on that? But on the other hand, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Those are the questions asked by Jesus in Matthew 16. So within Moses, there was a conflict and the tension built until this man who was powerful in speech and action decided to act. Moses could restrain himself no longer. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. One down and only one million to go. If Moses had become a vigilante, the lone avenger, and he'd done this kind of every day in his spare time, it would have taken how long? At least 40 years. Acts 7.23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them mis being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. But one thing is now certain. Moses is no longer a middleman. No longer idling in neutral among the undecided. He has made a decisive choice because this was an act of treason. This was an attack on the sovereignty of the Egyptian throne. So there was no turning back. Moses had reached the point of no return. So maybe, maybe this will inspire the Hebrews to rise up in revolt and fight for their freedom. Was this the beginning of a chain reaction? Pun intended. Acts 7.25, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them but they did not. He thought his own people would realize that he was being used by God to rescue them. 
Verse 13 of uh, Exodus 2. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have been become known. He was busted. And there went any hope of mobilizing the Hebrews under his leadership and starting a revolt. Come on, follow me. We're getting out of here. We're heading to Saudi Arabia. If Moses had any aspirations as liberator, his first solo attempt didn't get any light. Now what? Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. His act had gone viral. Everyone knew about it. And so this man that some called the GOAT, the greatest of all time, would spend the next 40 years herding goats somewhere in the wilderness, like a client in God's witness protection program, where no one could find him. And so whatever the ethics of Moses' uh, actions may have been, the Bible does celebrate this decision. In Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead for his reward. This act had all kinds of dimensions to it that would extend eternally. This was something that totally changed everything for him and for a lot of people. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. You know, the academic world has long debated the question, is it genetic or is it environment? Nature or nurture? What determines who we are? Well, genetically, Moses was a Hebrew. But environmentally, educationally, professionally, he was an Egyptian. Both influences powerfully impacted his life. But the decisive factor was not in his chromosomes or in his circumstances. The decisive factor was his choices. No matter what our DNA or our background, no matter what misfortunes we have experienced or what deficiencies we have, no matter what influences have impacted our life, we still have the power to make good and godly choices. And that is what makes us free. They did a research on twins who had alcoholic fathers. And they found one who himself was an addict. His marriage had failed. He'd lost many jobs. And they asked him, why did you turn out like this? 
And he said, well, with a father like mine, what else can you expect? And so they found the other twin. And he was sober and successful, had a great family. And they asked him, why did you turn out like this? And he said, well, with a father like mine, what else can you expect? It's our choices that determine who we become. Because our choices can break any bondage to sin, to addiction, to failure, to fear, to defeat, and self-pity. We can be free from any natural weakness, especially when these choices are made in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Because the supernatural always trumps the natural. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And so we are free. We have veto power. We can say no to God and reject everything He offers us. And we can also say no to temptation and everything the world offers us. What we can't do is say, Oh, man, I couldn't help it. The devil made me do it. It's not my fault. I was under orders. Everybody else was doing it. If God has given us freedom, then there is no excuse. Now, of course, freedom will have consequences. Because if you affirm the biblical worldview, for example, in some academic circles, they may laugh at you and hurt your feelings. If you don't endorse political correctness, the world may call you a traitor. If you don't conform to religious orthodoxy, you may end up nailed on a cross. Freedom has consequences. Even for Moses, who lived the next four decades self-imposed exile among the desert nomads. Out there, there were no more libraries, no banquet halls, no military parades, no grand cultural spectacles, just goats and sheep and sandstorms. There wasn't even any Wi-Fi. And somewhere far away, there was another Egyptian feeding a Hebrew slave. But Moses had given up any thought. He'd given up any thought of liberating his people. God, however, had not given up. Moses' career as a freedom fighter had gotten up to a really bad start. But God wasn't finished with him yet. And that's why one day Moses saw something curious. And he went over to see the strange sight, why the bush would not burn up. And God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. For the first 40 years of life, his life, Moses was renowned for his success. Moses spent the next 40 years in the penalty box, haunted by the bitter memory of his failure. Can God do anything with a person like that? 
Do you know anyone like that? Is there a failure in your past that has kind of overcast your life? That's made you cynical? And you've told yourself, I will never try that again. I'm finished. Is there some unfinished business in your, your life that's left you both disappointed with yourself and also disappointed with God? Have you given up? Well, if you have, I've got some good news for you. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm confident that the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God always finishes what he starts. We may give up and say, no, I'm not going to try that again. But God says, now wait a minute. I'm going to finish what you started because this is too important to leave to your emotions and your excuses. God always finishes what he starts, even in your life. So stay alert. Father, we thank you that you don't give up. You have every reason to give up because we've already given up. We're not willing to try it again. We're not even available. We're just kind of killing time. Just waiting for the end. Maybe somebody else can do it. disaster at first, even if we totally failed, to you those decisions were of great value, and the story is not finished. Moses was 80 years old, but he was just getting to the good part of his life, and that's all because of you. Who would we be without you? Holy Spirit, the supernatural power is there to overcome all of our 